Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Episode 7 features my interview with good friend and clinical psychology doctoral student, Rebecca Hill. Check out the show notes for links to all the books that we mentioned, and also check out anxietybookclub.com, where now there's merchandise. Thanks, and enjoy. So, Rebecca, full disclosure here, you're my friend, right? We know each (laughs) other from this apartment building that we live in uh, Fort Lauderdale. So, Rebecca Hill, you're a a PsyD student at NOVA. How how would you describe what you're doing right now? Uh, Yeah, I'm a clinical doctoral student at NOVA Southeastern. I'm in my third year working towards my PsyD, so you nailed it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, congratulations on making it this far into your education. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so what, what's it been like the, the first several years or the first three years, was that mostly classes and now you're transitioning into clinical or has it been a mixture? Yeah, it's been a mixture. Um, the first two years are really course load heavy. I was taking seven classes a semester, roughly sometimes more. So definitely very course load heavy. And then in my second year, I began my clinical training where I was doing like 10 hours a week seeing clients. Um, I was actually at Anova Clinic. Now in my third year, the emphasis is definitely more on clinical training. I'm currently taking one class, which is sweet (laughs) and feels very different. And I'm placing a higher priority on my research and my clinical training. So the program definitely shifts kind of midway through, but with a little bit of both sprinkled throughout. Awesome. And so just to give the listeners a little bit of context, what what is NOVA? Oh, NOVA Southeastern University. It's a private university in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, and I'm, I'm at the, yeah, I'm in the Department of Psychology building. So they have like an undergrad program, billions of graduate schools, and I'm in one of them. Gotcha. And seven classes a semester sounds like a lot. Is that yeah. is that more than than usual for a grad program? Um, not this type of grad program, just because there's so much foundational coursework that has to get, you kind of have to get through before you can even begin to like see clients or conduct research or anything like that. So some semesters, it would be like six full semester classes and then two half semester classes that would kind of rotate. Um, but it definitely is heavy to my understanding. That's how a lot of these clinical psych grad programs are. And so when, when you're all done with this, and you have the doctorate in clinical psychology, what will you be able to do? I will be able to see clients on an individual family couple level, conduct group therapy, conduct psychoeducational assessment and testing. So that's like IQ testing, personality testing, and I will be able to supervise other clinicians. So it's really, it opens a lot of doors conduct research and write. That's another aspect of it that I, I hope to do. So it definitely, you know, that all of those are kind of in, things that incentivize me towards working towards a doctorate. As opposed to a shorter degree that would still allow you to practice, but perhaps not at the same level. Yeah, exactly. So especially in the state of Florida, there's um, mental health counselors, which is a master's degree. There's social workers. There are a couple different options, but the distinction between those and being a clinical psychologist would really include that assessment piece. Um, that's something that's pretty unique to just clinical psychologists or school psychologists. Gotcha. And maybe this fits uh, your personality as a go-getter? Would that, <laughs> um, would that be I think accurate? It fits my personality as someone who gets bored doing the same thing. So I do like to 
mix it up. <laughs> and I think that it offers me those different options. Ah, uh, okay. I understand it now. So if you had only done the mm-hmm. master's, you would sort of be yeah. pigeonholed into being mm-hmm. a counselor. Whereas in this capacity, you could do research, mm-hmm. you could teach, you could mm-hmm. supervise people, and you can also do yeah. traditional therapy. Exactly. So how's, how's it been so far? Are you enjoying um, the it's program? It's been really grueling. I don't know that I've been enjoying it. I do feel that I've learned a ton. I've definitely grown as a person, as a clinician, as a student. Uh, I kind of like look back to where I was at the beginning and I'm like, oh, wow, like I knew nothing. <laughs> um, you know, you think you're like hot stuff because you got into grad school. But looking back, I, I kind of recognize how, how much I had to grow still. So it's been a really good experience in that sense, but it's also been incredibly grueling, um, takes a lot out of you. It's definitely being a graduate student. It's its own its own life. It's kind of hard to explain to other people, but it's it's your full top priority, and there's always more expected of you. And it definitely can be very draining. So so it's been an adjustment. I didn't expect it to take so much out of me. I think, but it, it overall has been a good experience. Sounds like you might be excited <laughs> to finish up and get yeah, that job. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. And I definitely am enjoying it more now that my emphasis is really on clinical practice because that's really what I want to do. So it really, it's starting to feel a lot better than just kind of being in such heavy semesters with heavy workloads and, you know, having all these things to get done, things to study for, papers to write, presentations to do. So it's nice to have a little bit more freedom and to really pr- place my emphasis on um, being, being a clinician, being a therapist. So as someone who's had mental health challenges and who's seen probably at least three or four counselors or psychologists mm-hmm. over the course of my career of dealing with mm-hmm. my brain, I sort of know what it feels like to be a patient. But, you know, your first time when you sat down with an actual <laughs> yeah. client, I, I guess you call them, what's, what's that like? Especially as someone who is a little bit of a perfectionist, I was really, really worried about saying the wrong thing and thoroughly impacting someone in a negative way who was already experiencing difficulties. And I was really, really nervous. When I, what I did to really soothe myself, and I still do it all the time to soothe myself when I feel like I'm off my game, is just remind myself that, you know, as much as we call someone a client, they're a human, you know? Research shows that the biggest predictor of therapy gains is really that relationship between client and therapist. And, you know, that feels like something I can do. I feel like I can sit in the room with another human and just kind of like be empathic and be present. And that doesn't take a lot of training or skills or know-how. That's just, you know, seeing someone human to human. And that, that really suits me. Obviously, I value, you know, research and theoretical aspects and traditional treatment models. And that stuff is very helpful. But whenever I'm in doubt and I feel kind of freaked out, I'm like, I don't know how to approach something. Or I don't know how to approach someone. I kind of place that emphasis on like their humanity and what I can do for them just by being in the room with them. So that's definitely helpful. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause like, I know we want to talk about like evidence-based yeah. approaches and all that, but it, it sounds like at least from your standpoint, a big part of like a healthy therapeutic process is just like being a decent person and like a, maybe yeah, a good absolutely. listener. Absolutely, and um, I think that when I feel stuck, I try to bring it back to that because not every evidence-based treatment is going to work for everyone, you know. And I kind of try to tailor make my therapeutic uh, approach for my clients. Um, but at the end of the day, I can always bring it back to that. Like that's baseline for me. It's just like person to person in the room 
can I offer empathy? Can I see their humanity? Can I be a good support? Um, and that still has, you know, like basis in the literature that would be kind of considered um, a Rogerian approach, you know, just being empathetic and showing unconditional positive regard for this other person. That's the term that like Carl Rogers uses. So that's definitely kind of my baseline whenever I begin with a new client or with any of my ongoing clients. And then from there, you try to, I, I mean, I try to make, tailor make my approaches and use the evidence, use the research to, to offer the best treatment that I can. Cool. Sounds, sounds like you might be a good person to talk to <laughs> for someone who's having a hard time. So yeah. that's a good segue, I yeah. think, into some of the actual sort mm-hmm. of problems that you encounter in your clinical research. So what are some of the hot topics that people are dealing with down here in South Florida <laughs> that they are seeking um, men- mental health yeah. help so for? So I spent my first year of clinical training at a, um, a family treatment center. So I was seeing a lot of kids with behavioral disorders, that being, you know, oppositional defiant disorder. I was seeing a lot of kids with ADHD. I was seeing kids with depression and anxiety. And what I really valued about being at a family treatment center is that you get to bring everybody into treatment. I did a lot of what we call parent training. So offering support and psychoeducation to parents who are dealing with their kids and, you know, they might not have a good understanding of what ADHD is and how that manifests in their child's difficulties. They might not have a good understanding about um, how they can better parent, honestly, and having that opportunity to work with parents to offer the best for their kids was really valuable because so often kids come into treatment and you don't get to work with the parents, but they're such a big part of that child's life and picture and presentation so that was a lot of my experience in my first year. Or, yeah. Okay. So, so Please. yeah. Well, let me just uh, chime in here because I'm I'm sort of fishing or hungry yeah. for maybe an example. Yeah. Um, what you're saying sounds really mm-hmm. compelling, right? Like, so for children who are dealing with mental health issues, maybe a big part of their therapeutic success is sort of getting the mm-hmm. parents on board. So I know you can't violate any sort of. Yeah. HIPAA um, sort of restrictions, but do you have any any yeah. stories oh, that you totally, want to share yeah. about this kind of and, um, thing? I guess this is you'll you obviously do your disclaimers, but disclaimer: this is not specific personalized mental health advice. You should always speak with your own clinicians or doctors. Um, but I kind of I'm totally happy to share just general advice. Um, working with uh, a child, let's say, who has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. People kind of go in with assumptions about what that is or what that looks like. Um, And just, you know, the cornerstone of ADHD is really um, executive functioning difficulties. So that child doesn't have the ability to self-regulate, to follow through on instructions, to be organized. um, And that's because they're lacking that executive functioning ability. What I've seen is a lot of parents, let's say, who... They'll get frustrated over and over again with a child who has ADHD, you know, oh, I told him he should know. And he knows where his homework is. He knows how to clean up his room. All these kind of basic childhood struggles that kids will have, right? You know, getting yelled at their parents for not cleaning their room or whatnot. Educating a parent about kind of what the deficits are and kind of some simple solutions that can support a child in those tasks can just take away so much of the drama and the heartbreak and the fighting and the punishment. One example is I had a child with ADHD and his parents would fight with him a lot that he he wouldn't, he would get home and say, oh, I don't have homework. 
And then, you know, the next day get in trouble at school for not doing his homework. And his parents, like, they thought he was lying. They thought he was manipulative. Like, they used all these really loaded words. I assessed him, diagnosed him with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and kind of relayed to them that it wasn't manipulative or intentional. He genuinely couldn't keep track of whether or not he had been assigned homework and kind of giving him a planner and getting him to write down whatever the teacher says and then reminding him when he gets home to check that planner, like, cleared up so much of their drama and kids with ADHD, you know, they might get diagnosed with ADHD really young, but if not treated or if they're not getting the right support, it can kind of manifest into these other, you know, internalizing or externalizing behaviors and mood disorders. So this child specifically was starting to get like really low self-esteem and, you know, he was kind of starting to internalize a lot of the things his parents were telling him about him that like, he was so lazy, he was so bad, he was dumb, like all this stuff was starting to internalize and kind of lead him down like a depressive path. So kind of intervening really young and getting the parents on board and giving them some education about what was going on for him can really clear a lot of that up. Wow. That's a, that's a really hopeful, it took a hopeful (laughs) twist that I wasn't expecting. Um, It's really nice that some of this early intervention uh, could really help a kid out sort of in the long term as far as how they see themselves and how they, kind of cope with things so you know i don't really know what Mm -hmm. the trends are like but for for a parent who's having this kind of difficulty what what sort of signs should they look for or like what age at at what point is it appropriate to start bringing a a kid to therapy is it is it always fine or is there a point at which it's like no they're too young they're not going to benefit from well it's kind of wild because this this experience i had last year the clinic would begin to see kids as young as age three and that sounds like, what? You can't put a kid in therapy that young. And, and that really speaks again to the argument that you're not putting the kid in therapy. You're kind of bringing the family in to clarify whatever's going on. So I actually did see a three-year-old last year and his parents came in and they were struggling with his behavior and he was you know, really oppositional. And you can, you can diagnose um, oppositional defiant pretty young, but I, I'm pretty wary of over-diagnosing a child. But there was definitely some defiance going on. He wasn't listening. Um, he was really emotional, crying at school. He couldn't really self-regulate. And he's really young, so he's not really supposed to self-regulate. But they brought him in. And ultimately, I met with this kid two or th- two or three times. Um, but I would see his parents weekly. And we would, we would really focus on parent training. Different. We were using a behavioral model of contingency training and trying to get more compliance out of their child. But I didn't really have to see him. I really had to see his parents. So working with them to kind of um, support them as they tried to clear up whatever was going on with their child was really a good experience for me. And, and I definitely, it speaks to the fact that a child in therapy often has a lot to do with what's going on at home, you know, and being able to support that, assess that and treat that can be really helpful for the child's outcomes ultimately. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost as if the child was sort of their excuse mm-hmm. to get into therapy, but the people who really needed to be treated yeah. were the parents. And I say that all the time. <laughs> so, not to parents. Oh, but, really? But I, okay. I do agree with that. It's 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 definitely that might the child might be what's bringing them in, but as a clinician, hopefully you're savvy enough to realize what the big picture is. So you mm-hmm. mentioned something interesting about being wary of overdiagnosing children, yeah. or or maybe people in general. I guess I'd never really thought too much about the impact of a professional's diagnosis could be on, you know, how someone thinks about mm-hmm. themselves or, or the kind of treatment that they uh, wind up acquiring. So, so is there a, 
a burden of proof or, or what, what exactly do you need or, or how do you go about um, thinking about diagnosing someone and whether or not it's too early or maybe they're not showing enough of the signs or, or maybe diagnosing allows you to then prescribe a specific course of treatment that you wouldn't have been able to without the diagnosis? Yeah. No, that's, that's totally a good question. And, you know, as I'm growing as a clinician, it's definitely that that is growing with me. My general approach is I think about what that diagnosis can represent to other clinicians who will come across it. So again, as I was talking about a little bit earlier, I'm very client-centered and I think a lot about, you know, their humanity, their presentation, their big picture. I'm wary of, let's say, diagnosing, putting it in a report, and then another clinician coming along and thinking they know everything about that client, especially when you're working with some some diagnosis that are a little bit more loaded or recognizes a little bit more taboo, like a personality disorder, something like that. So I'm very wary of over-diagnosing. If I want to put a diagnosis um, for a certain presentation, I'm very conscious about it. I really look for as much evidence as possible. There are a lot of diagnosis in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, which is what we're using now, that a lot of people don't know about. You know, people think depression, anxiety, personality disorders, that's kind of the range of it, but it's it's a pretty big, heavy book. I tend to look for as much evidence as possible and then give them the diagnosis that's like least, I guess, chronic as possible, you know, something, if it doesn't, if they don't meet the diagnosis for like a major depressive disorder, I'll kind of go down the path of another specified uh, depressive disorder with certain features and having that flexibility, I think can be very helpful because, you know, I know my clients and I know their presentation, what's going on. And again, I would really hate for another clinician to come along and read a report and, and assume that they fully understand what's going on based on a diagnosis. So I tend to be really cautious and I tend to be really cautious with children, especially I think something like ADHD has gotten really, it's like a trend, you know, everyone likes to assume that they're, they have ADHD or that their child has ADHD. So with something like that, it's, it's a good time to really look at the big picture and the parenting style. One landmark of diagnosing pretty much anything is that it should be present in multiple settings. So if you're seeing a kid really act out at home, but they can really regulate and sit in the classroom and not have any issues, that's probably not an ADHD presentation. That's probably a parenting uh, difficulty. And that's, again, where you would step in and work with the parents. So I try to look for those things, kind of what the presentation looks like in different settings, how much evidence there is. Kids come in with their parents and their parents are pretty much their full historians. But, you know, getting a sense from the child, what's going on, what it feels like in their experience can be really helpful too. Gotcha. So you've used a word, I guess that's sort of a, a term of art, maybe in psychology. But when you say mm-hmm. how someone presents or their presentation, I think you're describing like mm-hmm. their symptoms or or, yeah. or what exactly yeah, you do you mean it, by that? And I word. apologize if that's not something that was clear, but it, it is their presentation, which pretty much capture their symptoms, their severity, when things are taking place, where things are taking place, um, triggers, just kind of a whole range when we write up a report, it's usually what's the person's presenting problem? What's bringing them into therapy? Why now? What's going on for them? So, so that, yeah, I kind of would refer to that as like their presentation. And again, I'm, I'm very, I like to put the person first. So it's not a depressed person. It's a person with symptoms of depression. Um, and I try mm. to use person first language. I think that's probably helpful. Um, although I don't mind acknowledging that I'm an anxious person. It does sound better to say I'm a person with anxiety. 
So, yeah, so now that we're on sort of the topic of anxiety, and you mentioned it once or twice, and the name of this podcast is club. called the Anxiety Book Club. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about anxiety and how you've seen it in your patients or clients, what kind of treatments that you've been favoring or have been working well. Um, so, yeah, whatever you'd like to say about this uh, tremendous and yeah. very interesting uh, mental disorder. And I, anxiety is a fascinating beast, in my opinion, because... It's something that is on such a spectrum, you know, and, and I tend to explain it to clients like, you know, some level of anxiety is protective and kind of discussing that like fight or flight mode, um, you know, that, that when your body is in fight and it's telling you like there's danger, protect yourself, go, that's very adaptive. That's very helpful when it goes into overdrive and, you know, your body is experiencing that anxiety, your mind is experiencing that anxiety without necessarily a dangerous cue. Um, and it's kind of gone into overdrive. That's when it becomes less helpful, right? So that's kind of the general approach I take with it. And I always try to get a good measure of someone's anxiety, what it looks like for them, how they experience it, what they're aware of. You know, I do, I know I experience my own anxiety very physically. So I feel my body tense up, I feel it in my stomach, I sweat. And then for me, a lot of the techniques I'll use to calm down is going to be very body focused. So I'll do deep breathing and I'll stretch and I'll, meditate and a lot of that stuff will bring me back down. But for somebody who experiences their anxiety much more cognitively, and it's a lot about their thoughts and their recurrent thoughts, and um, they're struggling to, they're, they're not even maybe aware of what might be going on in their body because the thoughts are so powerful and so uncomfortable. That first line of treatment would really try to target um, cognitive restructuring. So more of like a cognitive model or cognitive behavioral model. That's definitely what's kind of common practice. I'm a big fan. I know you had Stephen Hayes on the podcast and I'm I'm such a big fan of ACT. I really do think it's, I think it's the future. I think it really blends a lot of different approaches into one evidence-based treatment model. I think having both like the mindfulness and those techniques to calm your breathing, calm your body with some of that cognitive, um, re- they don't call it cognitive restructuring, but you know, relational frame theory and reframing your thoughts and Mm-hmm. And um, all of that stuff can be so, so helpful. So that's definitely something I'm dabbling more with nowadays. So, yeah. So for the listener, uh, Rebecca's mentioning an earlier episode that we had with Dr. Stephen Hayes, who's sort of a pioneer in this aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy that stresses a lot of mindfulness um, approaches coupled with um, all the things you were mm-hmm. mentioning, uh, like the cognitive reframing techniques uh, and mm-hmm. diffusion techniques, I think is what he calls them. So okay. let's talk about that a little bit more specifically. So like for people whose anxiety presents, uh, to use our favorite word, <laughs> mostly mentally, and they're having these mm-hmm. obsessive thoughts, what what do you do? Yeah. Um, what, what I valued about that acceptance commitment therapy um, approach from what I've heard is really that Uh, that focus on the fact that thoughts may come and go the way one of the supervisors I'm working with now explained it to me is kind of like being at a parade, a really, really crowded parade. And there's all different kinds of floats. There's some that are beautiful and some that, you know, have great music. And then there are some that like look terrible and they're dirty and they're broken and they're making awful noises. And, you know, your role could either be to follow that, that parade, that float around You could follow the disgusting, broken up float around all day, be exhausted, hear the noise, have a headache. 
or you could follow the positive, chase the positive float, the float you love with the music around all day, which is also kind of exhausting. Or you can kind of stay in one place and let the floats come and go and let them pass you by. And you're not getting fused or attached to any float, you know, and this is obviously a metaphor and I kind of mixed it up in between, but um, you're not getting fused to any float. You're not getting fused to any thought. You're letting things play out. You're letting things pass you by. You're paying your focus and your attention to the positive ones and you're letting the negative ones just float by. And I think that's a really unique technique. I don't think that's easy. I think that takes lots and lots of practice to allow yourself to do that, um, to diffuse yourself from some of those negative thoughts, but to recognize that there's space for, for all thoughts, right? There's space for the negative and positive thoughts to pass you by and to become less fused with those negative ones that'll have some of those detrimental effects for your mental health. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think it's both effective mm-hmm. and difficult, uh, or I guess yeah. simple and hard, sort of like stand-up comedy. Like all you have to do is go up there on stage, but uh, doing exactly. it well is difficult. I think I think for that stuff to be effective, and you know, it's something I've tried to incorporate into my life, is you need to have some of the mm-hmm. mindfulness Absolutely. tools to be able to just ground yourself at least mm-hmm. for a few seconds. Because if you don't have those at all, it feels like the thoughts are just really running the show. And if you can't create any distance between you and those sort of ugly, dirty, broken uh, floats that you're describing, you won't even know that they're passing by. Like you'll be, mm-hmm. you'll be riding them. Yeah. And you might parade. not even see the positive ones, right? You might not even see the floats that are beautiful because you are fused. And we, a lot of us get caught up in that negative mindset. Um, there's that like little trick. I'm, I'm sure someone's mentioned it to you, but that that kind of concept of, you know, we think a lot of what ifs. What if everything goes wrong? What if I mess up? What if they hate me? And there's that little trick of like, oh, what if everything goes right? And what if they love me? And what if I kill the presentation? What if I do great? Like, you know, and that's, that's easier said than done to, to implement that stuff because it's so not what most of us are used to. And it's also not necessarily what's culturally supported. You know, we kind of have this, this culture of, of people thinking about all the things that are going to go wrong, you know, I don't know when when this episode will drop, but right now there is that big that big pandemic happening, and it's all the oh what ifs. yeah yeah that yeah, virus yeah you mean, and right? it's all the what ifs what if this what if that what if so so it's definitely culturally reinforced kind of this anxious negative fused mindset. So for future generations <laughs> of listeners who are listening to this episode and don't know, at the moment the universe is sort of mm-hmm. upside down right now. The uh, World Health Organization has declared a global pandemic concerning this uh, COVID-19 mm-hmm. coronavirus. So we're all working at home and just uh, just trying to get by while mm-hmm. while the earth burns. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's what and, the reference is. There's a lot out about there about there. managing your your anxiety around all this, and and hopefully anybody who needs it has had access to that because we live in an age where there's a lot of fear mongering and a lot on the news and you know, everyone's getting anxious. (laughs) So I hope those of you out there who have been experiencing some heightened anxiety due to this have been able to get what you need. It's it's interesting. Sometimes I think about what it would have been like if we were to have this conversation Mm -hmm. like 100 years ago, because on the one hand, we wouldn't have had people like Stephen Hayes or other like pioneers of cognitive behavioral therapy. So maybe we wouldn't have all these Mm -hmm. awesome techniques, but at the same time, we wouldn't have had Instagram and like 24 7 cable news and like text messages so i i don't know what would 
were they better or that they worse a hundred years ago when it came to mental health? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I, you know, I've heard a lot of pushback to getting kids in therapy and teens in therapy. Like, oh, we didn't need this in my generation or, you know, we didn't need this a hundred years ago. Um, while at the same time, you know, kids nowadays are reporting such heightened levels of anxiety. The expectations on kids nowadays are much, much higher um, just with standardized testing and, you know, every kid I've interacted with that's had a heightened level of anxiety comes in, you know, I have these extracurriculars, I'm in college classes, I, I do this, I do that, I'm doing standardized testing, I'm studying for the SATs, you know, and there's a lot of pressure on these kids. So, you know, the fact that we have services to support that really, it's because there's a need. It's not because there isn't a need. There's a, there's a really large demand for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I could see people's reservations maybe about medication, but you know, talk therapy, I feel like, how could that ever be like a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm biased, <laughs> but I think I think people are wary of doing the work that therapy requires. So it's less about the therapy mm. and it's more about the fact that you will be confronted with some things you don't want to deal with or some things you're not willing to change yet. So, So that definitely comes up. And the shame, right? The stigma that, yeah, that still that's, exists. That's still alive and well, that stigma. It's definitely it's definitely there there are movements and waves trying to change it or influence people and excite people about therapy and mental health, but it definitely is present for a lot of people and and it keeps a lot of people from coming in for services. I know for my parents' generation, there's so much stigma there. The idea of even going to a shrink is some sign of like failure or defeat and a source a source of gossip for their yeah. friends that they wouldn't even kind of consider it. Uh, even the word shrink. I don't know. Do you know where the word shrink comes from? <laughs> little fun fact. No, maybe I should um, stop it's using little, it's it. It's a little fun fact. It, um, it is definitely making, making jest of the mental health professionals. It's related to um, kind of like voodoo and head shrinkers like oh if you go see someone they're gonna shrink your head uh, yeah so it, it's not bad that you use it it's just i found that funny when i first found that out so for the record you haven't shrunk um, in anyone's not head professionally no not professionally oh, like so that's like a side yeah, yeah. sort of gig i know oh cool we could talk about that later okay. i guess good and i'm glad you gave that disclosure at some point about how this podcast is not a source of personal mental health advice and you should consult with a trained professional because i never sort of say that, but I think it's an important, important thing to say. So something we haven't talked about, which, you know, I'm curious about, and I'm sure, you know, the dozens and perhaps even hundreds (laughs) of listeners of this episode will want to know, yeah, is, is your journey and and why you decided to go into mental health and like, what brought you here? So I'm totally happy to share that. I was always like a little helper and I kind of went to college, like, I want to help people. Uh, I didn't really know what that meant for me. I started to study uh, to become a physician's assistant. I studied, took some bio classes, some chem classes, and and I was really miserable. And I definitely had some adjustment issues. I, I was really struggling, really, really unhappy. I felt like it had become such a big part of my identity that I was going to be this like medical professional. And I really struggled for a little while once I realized that wasn't going to happen for me. Um, so I began to do a lot of soul searching. I started taking just all sorts of random uh, classes. This was like my second year of college. And I got really interested in, and a lot of things happened kind of all at the same time. I don't know if that happens for you in your life, but things will unfold kind of as they're meant to. 
Um, so I was doing that and I was doing a lot of reading just cause that's how I kind of soul search. And I came across this book called Upwards. I can't remember the author right now, author right now, which is a shame and I will get back to you with it. But, um, this book called Upwards and it's all about resilience and post-traumatic growth and, um, some, a field called positive psychology. And, you know, for me, that was really eye-opening and really touched something in my soul. You know, I had the experience of losing my mom pretty young and going through that was definitely some some level of trauma and definitely very painful. And people always said to me, oh, you're so resilient. You bounce back and, oh, you're so strong. And I didn't really know what that meant. I just kind of was doing the best I could being a teenager without a mom. And, and I had worked really hard on myself to grow and to kind of live through this trauma and experience my life with the most fullness that I could, even after such a big loss. And then once I stumbled across this book, learning all about resilience, and it really, the work in the book talks a lot about veterans and their post-traumatic growth. And that for me, like changed everything. Like it just got me so curious and thirsty for more information, more about resilience, more about mental health, what makes us mentally strong. And I just, I had been so, so excited once I read that. And I kind of switched my major and I started to study more psychology. I started to get read everything I could get my hands on about um, mental well-being. And I'll just jump into talking a little bit about positive psychology, which is really, really what opened my, my heart up. Um, positive psychology is kind of a new movement within the past 20 years, um, which is pretty young for the field of psychology. Um, and it really places an emphasis on well-being and growth and resilience and kind of the science of happiness, what makes life worth living. The The founder kind of of this movement is Martin Seligman. He was the president of the American Psychological Association. He has a million amazing books I could recommend to you and to your readers. And definitely that could be a good podcast episode for you if you start to think about some positive psych stuff. But yeah, positive psych started to add um, what was missing from the field of psychology because in kind of regular psychology, we place a really big emphasis on what goes wrong and on pathology and positive psychology tries to think about what goes right. You know, how can we learn from the people that are mentally strong and resilient and then use those tools to help other people become more mentally strong and resilient. So that was kind of my introduction to the field. And from there, I actually ended up working at a nonprofit when I was living in New York City, um, which totally used a positive psych um, approach. She had studied with Martin Seligman, uh, the CEO of his foundation, and it was really, you know, that was another step. And and that kind of took me through college until I I took the time to apply to grad school. And then I um, I'm ranting. I don't know if you want to interject at all. (laughs) that's my job okay i'll decide when so from there i um had moved from new york and i was uh applying to graduate schools and i felt that i could take this this edge this positive psychology psychology edge that i valued and bring it a little bit into the clinical world and for anybody outside of the field they'd be like oh of course that makes sense it's psychology it goes together but in any class I'd ever given a presentation about positive psych on, no one had ever heard of it, which was kind of wild yeah. to me. Some professors had maybe heard of it, but none of my classmates. So you have this future generation of clinicians that's still kind of stuck on disorder, stuck on pathology, stuck on all the things that go wrong. And that kind of, for me, gives me an edge a little bit coming in and being able to share that with my peers and my colleagues and with my clients. So that kind of took me into the clinical psych world. 
Um, and that's, that's where I am now. Awesome. Yeah. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, it sounds like a lot of like your upbringing and then you happened upon, I mean, I think it's amazing that you happened upon this book upwards and we'll definitely try to include it Mm -hmm. in the show notes, but were you just Googling around for books on resilience or how did that come? I think I had been reading like a time magazine and it had a little blurb about it and I was like, Oh, and I just ordered it and I bought it and I read it. I'm a big reader. So if something piques my interest, I, I read it as soon as I get my hands on it. Yeah. I think that's terrific. And it's, and what a, what a sort of positive way, not only for yourself, but for your future clients to sort of deal with something difficult, uh, you know, to read a book that sort of informs your mm-hmm. life going forward and helps you make a career decision. Um, I can't think of a better way. Normally, I just go in the kitchen and eat like, a, like six or seven bagels, but this <laughs> seems like much better. Maybe. <laughs> well, hey, for Anxiety yeah, Book for Club, sure. you know, that's how this all got started for you, I think. The fact that you're such a consumer of books and you, you felt that you could share that with people and that it would be helpful to people. That's that same kind of mindset. Yeah, you know, you're you're totally right. I've been trying to get the author of that book, the first book that I read about anxiety that really t- turned things around for me. Mm-hmm. It's called Dare. By Barry McDonough. It's a really terrific book. And it really simplifies um, a lot of the steps recommended by mm-hmm. not shrinks, but uh, you know, trained psychologists for how to deal with anxiety mm-hmm. in a productive way. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think books are amazing. You know, even though we have so much information now on the internet, books are still just really yes, good. I completely agree. I took a course on edX mm-hmm. not that long ago called The Science mm-hmm. of Happiness. Yeah, yeah, and it was these people from I think it's called the Greater Good Center at yes. UC Berkeley. They have a lot of really they do good a lot resources research on Yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the in the show notes also. You know, a, a lot of sort of psychological professionals now are starting to have maybe an online presence. Yeah. I know my um, psychi- psychologist or counselor has a YouTube channel where he's been posting stuff mm-hmm. about OCD. Do you have or anticipate having an I online presence? I anticipate having one. Uh, At first, I was kind of resistant to it because I wasn't much of a social media user myself, um, and I haven't been for a long time. But I've begun to sort of cultivate a social media account, and I just follow accounts that are really supportive and give a lot of really good perspectives. I follow a ton of therapists on Instagram, and and it's definitely been a supportive environment for me, and especially someone who's experiencing pretty heavy mental health difficulties and you know is stuck with a lot out a lot of resources or kind of stuck at home I I find that you know that's great that that's available to them you know they don't have to go anywhere they don't have to do anything like it's right there and I think making mental health resources so accessible is such a blessing so I definitely do foresee that for myself at some point there's definitely a new movement for kind of telehealth you know doing therapy over Skype that's something a lot of people are doing And I don't know if I see that in my future just because I'm such an in-the-room kind of therapist and I really like to work with the energies in the room and I'm also technically challenged (laughs) setting up computers and and you saw that yourself this morning. So (laughs) that's probably not the best option for me, but but definitely some sort of uh, presence, I think, is, is a really good resource to put out into the world for anybody that it might be helpful for. Yeah, so we'll have to circle back with you when you do get that presence and and let our listeners know about it. So I think you mentioned something uh, interesting that we haven't really gotten from the other guests. And since you're, you know, you're a young person, you're woke (laughs) and hip and with it, uh, this whole idea of getting help through these really popular channels Mm -hmm. like Instagram, is there any handles or any people in particular you recommend? Oh my God, where do I start? 
Um, yeah. So many, so many people. A lot of um, the influencers I've cultivated for myself are a lot of uh, researchers on body acceptance, well-being, health psychology. Um, so I'm a big fan of Lindo Bacon. I'm a big fan of Evelyn Trebol. They're both on Instagram. I'm a big fan of, I'm just scrolling really quickly because I'm so excited to share, um, The Mind Muse. Sure. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Rachel underscore last name. Her, I'll, I'll read out her last name. So it's Rachel underscore T-U-C-H-M-A-N underscore L-M-H-C. She's a life and mental health counselor. Um, there's so many, so many great people. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll put those, um, we'll put those in the notes. Fan of. And again, it's just you know, the age we live in where everyone's glued to their screens, you can take in a lot of information, you can take in a lot of content and to have that content be geared towards like supportive mental health resources can just be really good. Just you don't even realize how it might affect you or how it might stand out to you. But even coming across like one or two quotes that can make you feel more supported in your day can make a big difference, I think. Awesome. Awesome. So I'll just I'll ask you sort of maybe one last question and I'll let you get on with the rest of your Friday here. So do you have any anything that I didn't ask or anything that you think would be especially helpful to either a listener or maybe even someone who was in your shoes a few mm-hmm. years ago thinking about getting into the mental health profession? Any any sage oh, yeah. words of that's advice? A, that's a nice question. I'll speak to people thinking about getting into the field because I know I was definitely very intimidated, especially by the thought of graduate school. I've always liked school and done well in school, but this felt like a whole other level. You know, when I when I hear myself saying I'm going for my doctorate degree, I kind of want to laugh at myself because that just is crazy. But it's definitely, if you feel like you're cut out for it, do it. You know, you don't know the impact you can have on people. You don't know what unique perspectives you can offer people. I think I, you know, I was always feeling insecure that I wasn't academic enough and I wasn't professional enough. And I had a lot of fears around that, especially because I'm very goofy and very uh, you know, chill. I don't know. I'm, I'm, that's kind of how I like to be just very relaxed. And that allows me to be that way with my clients. You know, I offer evidence-based treatment and I offer empathy, but I'm also somebody that they can laugh with. And I'm also somebody that, you know, therapy isn't stressful. And I really try to normalize their experience in therapy that we can laugh and we can cry and we can talk and, you know, we can, you can be yourself in the room. I think as a therapist, people get really scared from being themselves in the room. They want to be this like, upright professional and they're obviously professional boundaries and things to upkeep but um be yourself be yourself with your clients be yourself through graduate school you know share your struggles if you're in graduate school and sharing your own you know experiencing your own mental health difficulties like get support you know you're human too so that was kind of a roundabout answer but you know I think it brings me back to how I even started which is such a beautiful sweet full circle that it's all about humanity, I think, at the end of the day. So be your most human self, be your most well-developed self. And that's what's going to enable you to, you know, help your clients be their most human and well-rounded selves. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. So you took something that maybe mm-hmm. you were concerned that made you less serious and it turns you to be just uh, mm-hmm. more empathic and sort of a more human yeah, practitioner. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, 
Um, I cherish our friendship and, and I'm so glad that you were able to make oh, the time to be on the podcast. And you're going to have a hundred new listeners because of my friends and families, because I've been bragging about this for weeks and it really is an honor. And I think what you're doing with this podcast is really, really important. So, so big cheers to you, my friend.